Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. Easter is coming. Y'all excited? It's going to be an awesome weekend. As you heard on the video, we've got a full weekend, a full week ahead of us. If you want to jump in and be a part of our Holy Week devotionals, we have put together a resource with, uh, for you to journey along with us throughout the whole week starting tomorrow. And so it's a really awesome way for you to dive into the week and really prepare your hearts leading up to Easter weekend. And we've got a Good Friday service in here on Friday. We've got Saturday, our first Easter service with the Easter egg hunt. And then obviously Sunday morning, we have two Easter services. So it's going to be awesome. Invite a friend. Um, incredible opportunity. This is one of the, the two times a year where I promise you, if you step out and invite somebody, Send a text message, ask a neighbor. Easter and Christmas are the two easiest invites a year. And so I want to encourage you to use your voice, be praying, Lord, who would you have me bring with me to Easter this year? Okay, today, as you heard, is Palm Sunday. And, you know, we're in a series called The Real Jesus. We'll get to that in just a second. This is installation number Two in that series. And before we get there, though, in honor of the Masters, I thought I'd open by way of a Masters illustration because I know some of the men and maybe some of the ladies in this room are just jonesing to get home and to see what happens for the rest of the day. And so I'm going to give you a little throwback from a couple days ago, which was a really cool moment. If you're watching us online, I'm sorry, we got to turn the volume down on this for the live stream so they don't shut us down. But I want to show you all a clip real quick that happened a few days ago at the Masters. Check this out. Count it. Buckets, right? Right there. Stuart Sink, man, representing for the old guys. He's out there dropping a hole in one. It was so cool. Now, I I want to show you another clip of this from a different angle because it's fascinating to see how this hole in one happened. So check out this clip. That's the path of the ball right there. I mean... Side note, I've been to the Masters one time in my life, most incredible sporting event I've ever been to aside from a Georgia football game, and uh, the roar of the crowd through the Augusta Pines when something like that happens is legendary, but hey, we're not done. I got one more clip. Hang with me, okay? I promise you, you'll see where this is going. I want you to see how long it took for them to realize the ball was actually going to go in the hole because if you watch the flight path of that ball... It took about 20 feet to travel from where it landed all the way down to the pin. So check out the reaction of Stuart and his son, who is his caddy. (laughs) I love that. His son just like stops. Is this really going to happen? And it goes in. But they were almost off the tee box by the time they realized the ball was going in the hole. And, And here's what struck me. When that ball landed on the green... Nobody but God knew it was going to end up as a hole-in-one. You see, at the Masters, if you know about the Masters, you very rarely are aiming directly at the pin. They're, they're the hardest greens on the planet. So you got to aim at the other side of the green and hit a slope that then brings it all the way down to wherever the pin might be. The greens are the fastest greens in golf. That's what they're known for. And so all day long... Guys had been hitting it up on that right-hand side, hoping to catch the slope and sending the ball down near the pin. People had watched it happen over and over again. 
but nobody had seen one actually go in the hole as a hole in one. And here's what struck me. Because none of them knew where that bowl was going to end up, none of them knew the outcome of the story, no one knew where this thing was going, they were walking off the tee box as though it was just another shot. They had, you know, they had put the bags on the back, the caddy, his son, had handed him the putter. He had literally had the putter in his hand, was taking off his glove to get ready to putt when the ball went in the hole. See, there was a connection that was happening from where the ball landed to where the ball ended that no one knew was coming. And I promise you, maybe this is a stretch for the Masters, but it's real, okay? Here we go. From Palm Sunday to Good Friday, I want to say this so clearly. There is a connection that God is making. There is something intentional that Jesus was doing when he entered the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And nobody but God knew that it was going to end with Good Friday. Nobody but God knew that, man, when Jesus was entering the city gates, when he was riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey, and people were laying their palm branches in front of him and worshiping him, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest, singing his praises as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. Nobody knew, except Jesus and his Father, that this thing was heading to a cross where within one short week, just a few short days, the same crowds that were praising his name, that were shouting his praises, would be shouting something very different. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. You see, there's a connection between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, and if we're not careful, we'll miss it because it's all a part of a bigger plan. Palm Sunday is the beginning of Holy Week, and the reason we call it Holy Week is because it's looking at the last week of Jesus' life on earth. The events of the final week of Jesus' life on earth. And friends, what we have to see, if we're going to understand, if we're going to learn who the real Jesus really is, we have to see the connection between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, between the triumphal entry and the cross of Christ where he died, where he was hung for the sins of the world. You know, in the series, The Real Jesus, we've been looking at three things, kingdom, cross, and resurrection. Kingdom, cross, and resurrection. And if you want to know Jesus, if you really want to get to know the Jesus of the Bible, you got to understand that he is the king of a kingdom. He is God in the flesh. He is the king of heaven and the king of earth. And one day he's coming to reign and rule over everything. That's why we sing praises to his name. That's why we lift up our, his name and say how great is our God. Because he's the king of a kingdom, but the way he became the king of that kingdom, the way he entered into the, the authority and the kingship of that kingdom was through a cross on Calvary where he was hung for the sins of the world. And you do not know or understand Jesus unless you understand why he went to the cross. Unless you understand his heart behind the cross, what he was accomplishing on the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the center point of the Christian religion. And yes, I know, 
Easter, right? Easter's coming. It's like, well, what, isn't, what about the resurrection from the dead? The cross wouldn't mean much if he didn't rise from the dead. Well, friends, he did rise from the dead, and he's alive. And so that validates everything that happened on the cross, and the work of God was done on the cross through his son, Jesus Christ. And so, friends, Easter is coming. He's the king of a kingdom. The way he took his throne was through a cross, what we're going to look at today. And next week, we're going to celebrate the fact that he overcame death for us. Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 1. He said, and I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, to the church in Corinth, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come with fancy words or a lot of wise arguments. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is Paul saying, I, don't, I literally don't know anything else except Jesus and him crucified? No. He's saying, my main message to you, the center point of my message to you, church in Corinth, is Jesus went to the cross to die for you. And if that really makes its way deep into your heart, then you'll understand the entire point. You'll understand the center point of the Christian faith. And friends, I, I do believe this just in my own life. I feel so called by God to preach on the cross of Christ. I feel like one of the central callings of my life is to tell people the good news of the gospel that God became a man in his son Jesus and literally took everything we deserve so that he could give us everything we needed. Forgiveness, grace, mercy, love. It is the self-sacrificing God to set us free. And I know when I preach on the cross and I proclaim the truth of God's love for us in Christ and what actually happened there, the Holy Spirit begins to do things in people's hearts and lives. Because God says, look, this is the central message. This is what it's all about. It all comes down to this. There's no message like this on planet Earth. Nothing has ever been thought of like this. This is the point of it all. This is what God is like. If you want to know our God, yes, you can look at Christmas and the birth of baby Jesus, and everybody loves that, and that's powerful. We're not taking anything away from that. But if you really want to know God, you can't just look at one part of the story. You got to look at the whole arc and the arc of the story, the culmination from Genesis 3 till now. It all culminates in this one moment where God, as a man, goes to the cross to die for the sins of the world. This is the center point of it all. Paul said it like this a little bit later in 1 Corinthians. He said, look, what I received, that's the gospel, I passed on to you as of first importance, the most important thing, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So Paul says, look, all the events that we're heading into on Easter weekend, Good Friday, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. He goes, these are the most important things. These are the, this is the stuff. This is the center point of what we believe as Christians. And friends, as we meditate on this together, as we look at this together, my prayer is that God would do something in your heart 
as we head into Easter, that there would be a sense of gratitude, a weight of gratitude of what Jesus has done for you and for me. And you'd see the connection between Palm Sunday and Good Friday and what God was up to this entire week ahead of us. John Stott, one of my favorite theologians, a brilliant preacher, said it like this. He said, Christianity is a rescue religion. It declares that God has taken the initiative in Christ Jesus. God did the work. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from sin and death. This is the primary theme of the entire Bible. It's the whole story. The whole thing is about, man, we turned our back from God, and there was massive consequences to that. Just look around. Some things have gone horribly wrong. One of the greatest evidences of the fact that things have gone horribly wrong is the fact that people actually age and die. You weren't intended to age and die. Death has reigned for a long time. And so God says, look, I'm taking initiative from the very beginning to call a people out through Abraham, to bring a blessing to the nations of the earth, eventually through my son Jesus, and then to return again and make all things new the way they were meant to be. Christianity is a rescue religion. It's a faith based on the fact that our God came to rescue us. Listen to just a few verses to, to back up what I'm saying here. Matthew 1.21, right at the beginning when Jesus is born, it says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. 1 Timothy 1.15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. So you need to fully accept what Paul is about to say here. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, to save people that have turned their back on God, to save people who are broken, which is all of us. 1 John 4.14, we have seen and testified that the Father sent the Son to be the rescuer, the Savior of the world. Friends, you can think of it like this. Every religion on earth has a symbol. Judaism, Islam, Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Shinto, all of these have symbols that represent the core of their beliefs. And it's so amazing to me when you think about it, and this is such evidence that there is nothing on earth like Christianity. The symbol of the Christian faith is this, how utterly different than every other man-made religion on earth. How utterly, completely unheard of. The symbol of our religion is literally an instrument of execution. The, the symbol of our faith is a God-man, a man who was more than a man, God, Jesus Christ, hanging on a tree for you and for me. There is nothing like Christianity in the entire world. That's because it's not from this world. It's from God. Christianity has a cross at the center. And in order to know the real Jesus, we have to understand why. Why the cross? What was happening on the cross? It's so amazing to me when you read the Gospels. And I was looking through the Gospels all this week, preparing for Easter and this Sunday. Over and over and over again, Jesus looks at his disciples 
and he goes, guys, I got to tell you what's coming. I got to tell you why I'm here. I got to tell you the purpose of it all. He says it really well in John 12, 27 to 33. He says, now my soul is troubled. This is similar to like the moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Don't make me go through with the cross. What should I say? Should I say that? No, he says. It is for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name, God. Jesus answered, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Nobody had a clue. Nobody knew why Jesus was here. Nobody really got it. You know, at the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, they were thinking, this is it. He's going to do it. He's going to overthrow the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. He's going to usher in a new messianic reign for the Jewish people. He's going to overthrow Rome. Look, the, the whole nation seems to be following him right now. This is it. And Jesus goes, friends, this is not my purpose. This is just the beginning of my purpose. The only reason I'm doing this is because I know this triumphal entry will eventually lead the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees to push me towards the cross. Do you see the connection? I'm not here to overthrow Rome. I've got a way bigger bone to pick than that. I'm here to go to war with sin and Satan and death. I'm here to overthrow the ruler of this world. Rome is a pawn in a much bigger scheme that God has going on. God is the ruler of the earth. He, he reigns and rules, and he is orchestrating all the events around the last week of Jesus' life very strategically. And Jesus gives us not just hints, but blatant statements that this is coming. I think about last week when Pastor Dave did such a great job preaching on the baptism of Jesus. And John the Baptist, as the crowds are gathered around the Jordan River, maybe you can picture it in your mind, just throngs of people crowding around John the Baptist at the Jordan River as he's baptizing people. And suddenly Jesus walks up to be baptized. And John just stops everything and goes, Behold, look, the one I've been talking about. And he calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God. What was the purpose of a lamb? Especially heading up to Passover when you're thinking through a Jewish perspective. The Lamb was the sacrifice. The lamb was the thing by which you covered your doorposts and the lintels of your doorpost with the blood of the lamb so that you would be saved. And it was a symbol of being set free from captivity in Egypt. And here John the Baptist looks at Jesus and goes, the lamb of God, that's God's lamb for the whole world. That's the final sacrifice for sins. This is the way that all of us will be healed and made whole. From the very beginning, the, the purpose of Jesus' life was made crystal clear. Fast forwarding just a little bit, Mark 8, 
There's this section in Mark 8 where Jesus is with his disciples. He's in Caesarea Philippi, and in that particular location, there were idols. I've been there. It's, it's wild. There are, there's a huge cliff in front of you, and in the cliff are carved these little um, nooks in the stone, and inside the nooks of the stone are just every god, goddess, idol that you can imagine. And there are hundreds upon hundreds of nooks in the stone where people would come to pick their deity of choice and worship it. And right there, Jesus goes, who do people say that I am? And they respond, well, some say Elijah, some say a prophet. And Jesus goes, well, in the midst of all these gods, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, if you remember, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. He, he rightly names who Jesus is is in that moment, the Savior of the world. And immediately, this is amazing to me, verse 31 in Mark 8, as soon as Peter declares who Jesus was, the Son of God, Jesus responds, he says this, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's him, Jesus, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again months before he went to the cross. He's preparing his disciples. Guys, you're right, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah sent to save the world. So let me just tell you how it's going to happen. Let me explain to you how I'm going to do that. I'm going to die. I'm going to get handed over to the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. They're going to put me to death. Don't worry. Don't freak out when that happens. I'm telling you beforehand so you'll be ready for it, right? I'm going to come back from the dead. I find that a little bit funny. Not funny, it's heavy, it's weighty, right? But can you imagine the disciples? Imagine hearing that from him. They're like, look, I've seen you walk on water. I've seen you cast out demons. I've seen you heal the lame, heal the blind. I've seen you do some amazing stuff, Jesus, but I, I can't quite get my head around this whole, you're the Messiah, but you're gonna die and then rise from the dead? He goes on the very next chapter. Jesus continued. He kept telling them, okay, so they wouldn't forget. Mark 9, 31, Jesus continued to tell his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they're going to kill him. I'm the Son of Man, he says. I'm the Son of God, the Son of Man. I'm going to be handed over to men and killed. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. I'm going to come back. Trust me. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. They had no clue what Jesus was talking about. They had no idea what he was saying. They had no grid for him being crucified. And then right before the triumphal entry happened, this is so kind of Jesus, but just imagine this over and over and over again. Do you think Jesus had any doubt at all as to why he had come? In case you did, look at this. Right before he goes, Matthew 20. Matthew 21 is the triumphal entry. It's Palm Sunday. It's what we're celebrating today. In Matthew 20, he pulls his disciples aside, and here's what he says. Matthew 20, verse 17. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, about to head in, and people are going to shout praises to his name, on the way he said to them, or he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, look, 
We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He adds more detail. He goes, here's how it's going to happen. Mocked, flogged, crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. I imagine there is such confusion among the disciples at this point. Wait, that doesn't, what do you mean, Jesus? You keep saying you're going to die and rise. Like, you keep saying this, but what dead person ever comes back to life? Aside from Lazarus, but you were the one doing it. Who's going to raise you from the dead? I, this doesn't make any sense. And, and then the word crucified, that would have been such a weird concept for the disciples. They're like, what do you mean he's going to be crucified? We know the type of people who are crucified. They're enemies of the state. Listen to this. I was doing some research on crucifixion. This is it. Crucifixion, says N.T. Wright, New Testament theologian, was a powerful symbol throughout the Roman world. It was not just a means of crushing rebellion. So they, it was used to squelch rebellions or, or those who were trying to overthrow the government. It was not just a means of crushing rebellions and striking fear into the hearts of anyone who would try to undermine the government of Rome. It did so with the maximum degradation and humiliation. We want to not just squash the rebellion, we want to humiliate those who try and stand against us. It was a loud and clear message from the government, from the, the empire of Rome, the government of Rome. We are in charge here. You are our property. We can do with you what you like. If you stand against us, you will get crucified. And so the disciples are like, Jesus really hasn't said anything about Rome. He said a whole lot about the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. Why would, why would you be crucified, Jesus? You're not, a, you're not a threat to the state. At this point, really, Rome had not gotten very involved in the entire story of Jesus. He had been going after the religious leaders. But here is the key of the story. Here's how Palm Sunday gets connected to Good Friday. Here was the issue that the Pharisees and the chief priests had to figure out. It says this. I'll read it for you in John 19, 31, just so you can hear it from God's word. Jesus was put on trial six times, six times between Thursday and Friday before he was crucified. They kept bringing him to Pilate, saying, we want to kill him. Here's what it says in John 19, 31. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Rome has no issue with this guy. This is a religious uh, you know, quarrel between him and you. Keep me out of it. Judge him by your law. But the Jews responded to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. We're not allowed to kill him. What do you want to kill this guy for? I imagine Pilate being like, What? You just took this up a level. What, what did he do? He's no threat to us. Why is he a threat to you? And they're like, hey, we're not allowed to kill him. So now the Jews have to figure out a way. The chief priests and the Pharisees are like, all right, how do we make his execution legal? We got to convince this guy, Pilate, that he's actually a threat to Rome. That actually he, he is an insurrectionist who wants to take down Caesar. So now they've got to come up with this big elaborate plan because Friends, they had no authority to kill Jesus. They had no authority to kill him. They had to find a way. The Jewish leaders had to find a way to legally put Jesus to death. They had to convince Pilate that Jesus was a political threat to Rome. 
And here's why they wanted to do that. There were three reasons. The reasons the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests wanted to kill Jesus is that they were jealous. Two, he claimed to be God. And number three, he exposed them. In John 11, verse 48, it says this. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered the council and they said, what are we going to do? About this Jesus guy. This man performs many miracles. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. They're all going to follow him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're going to take away our power, our influence. Right now, everyone comes to us for the answers. Now they're going to him. Right now, even Rome comes to us as the authoritative figures in Israel, but everyone's going to him. This is our place in our nation. We've got the power. If anybody wants to get right with God, you've got to go through a Pharisee or a scribe or a chief priest. You've got you to dance to their tune. You've got to follow their ways. They're the ones letting you know, here's what it takes to get into relationship with God. And so they were jealous because now people were going to Jesus. People were following him. Number two, he claimed to be God. This was a big deal. John 10, 33. They tried to stone him before they crucified him. Says this, we are not stoning you for any good deed you've done, they replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. You claim to be God. So they're jealous of him. He's taking their place and their power in the Roman Empire. He has committed blasphemy by claiming to be God, but mostly he exposed them. He exposed them. Um, give an illustration of this. Anybody in here ever been extremely grateful that occasionally a teacher or a professor would grade on a curve? Anybody been in that moment? I'll never forget in high school, I don't know why I decided to do this. I decided to take AP calculus, was trying to get extra credits for college. I don't recommend this to anybody. I'm not a math guy. AP calculus was brutal. And I'll never forget the second or third test of the semester, uh, I got my score back, and I think it was like a 67, right? Rough, really rough, okay? Clearly not a math guy. Now, as I asked my friends, I was like, hey, what'd you get? What'd you get? Everyone was like, somewhere in the like maybe low 70s to high 50s, low 50s, okay? And we're thinking, oh man, maybe our teacher will grade on a curve, right? You know how that works? If everybody bombs the test, she like adds 10 points or 20 points to your score, depending on how bad it was. So we're like, oh, please, please grade on a curve, right? And she's like, well, I would, except for Dan Bach over here. We wanted to crucify Dan Bach in that moment. Dan Bach was, I'll never forget this guy, smartest guy I've ever met to this day. 1,600 on his SAT, went to MIT. I believe he works for the CIA. Like, he's gone dark for the past six years. He's cracking code somewhere. He is like a beautiful mind. I'm not kidding you. I think he missed one point the entire, he got like 199 that year in all of AP Calculus. He didn't miss anything. He was, his mind just worked that way. So everyone's over here groveling in the corner with our D's and F's. And he's like, I got 100. And we're like, thanks, Dan. You just ruined it for the rest of us. You broke the curve, right? This is what Jesus was doing to the Pharisees. Think about this. They were the standard. 
They were the 100% right with God. Everybody else was groveling at their feet, trying to figure out how do we become like them. And Jesus shows up on the scene, maybe you remember this from the Sermon on the Mount, and he goes, hey, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, unless you're way better than them, you got no shot because they're not all that impressive. Outwardly, they act like there's something special, but they're hypocrites. They try to follow the, word, the rules externally, but internally their hearts are far from God. And so Jesus shows up on the scene, and he starts busting. He starts breaking the curve of the Pharisees. And look, when you're in the presence of, a re, of the real thing, it's really easy to spot a counterfeit. It's really easy to spot a counterfeit. And Jesus shows up as the real thing, and he exposes the hypocrisy and the fraudulency of the, of the scribes and Pharisees. And they didn't like that. And then after he enters the city on Palm Sunday, you know, maybe he could have pulled the ripcord. Maybe he could have said, man, I'm just going to hit the brakes. This thing is getting heated. It's getting pretty intense in here. But no, he hits the gas. And he goes straight into, on Monday, he goes into the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers. He overturns the, the tables of the merchants who were lining their own pockets with money from those who wanted to worship in the temple. They were robbing them and they were also fleecing the pockets of the chief priests. They'd set up a financial scam to take advantage of those who wanted to worship God and Jesus shut that down. Then the very next day, he began to teach for three straight chapters, he teaches all through the end of the Gospels, and most of the time, he is confronting the scribes, the Pharisees, and the chief priests. So instead of hitting the brakes and saying, okay, this is getting pretty intense, I'm making them angry, he hits the gas. And check this out, right? Matthew, he says this, 23 verse 13, he goes into the seven woes of the scribes and Pharisees. He hits them where it hurts. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. He goes, look, you're not even making it. I'm here. I'm the standard. And unless you enter through me by faith in me, you're out. They didn't like that very much. He goes on. He calls them hypocrites over and over again. He says, you shut the kingdom to people instead of opening the door wide like I do. He called them children of hell. There you have it, right? There's fighting words right there. He said they were like the blind leading the blind. They were whitewashed tombs. They were a brood of vipers. He says, all you do is kill the messengers that God sends. You ever seen a fight, like a physical fight between two people? not on pay-per-view or a boxing, I'm like in public somewhere. It's kind of an awkward moment, right? But all fights, we know how they start, right? They start with words. Somebody looks at somebody else, they're offended, boom, boom, yeah, yeah, yeah. The other person's like, oh, what happened? Yeah, whatever he says, I don't know what they're talking about. And it escalates, they get closer, they get like up in each other's face and then someone says something about the other one's mom, you know what I'm talking about? And you, you talk about the mom and it's over. It is over. The next, the next thing that happens is a punch is flying. And it's so interesting to me because Jesus strategically, he enters the city to shouts of Hosanna, which would drive the chief priests and the, the scribes and the Pharisees crazy. 
Who do these people, how could they say that about him? Then he walks in, he overturns the tables, and he calls them out again. Then he goes straight to the seven woes, calls them a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. And right as he finishes preaching in Matthew 26, he knows he's pushed it across the line. And he did it on purpose. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples again, you will know that after two days the Passover is coming. So I've been here teaching for a few days. I've been kicking the hornet's nest. I've been poking the bear. In two days the Passover is coming, and I, the Son of Man, will be delivered up to be crucified. He goes, look, I just put the final nail in the coffin. It's going to happen. They're going to figure out how to do whatever they have to do to get me crucified. They're gonna go straight to Pilate, they're gonna put me on trial. Look, I made sure of this. This was a part of the plan from the beginning. I am the Lamb of God who is here to take away the sins of the world. So they tried Jesus before Caiaphas, the high priest. They found him guilty of blasphemy. They brought him to Pilate, Pilate said, you deal with him. I don't see anything wrong with him. He's no threat to Rome. I'm not going to crucify this guy. They bring him back. We want him dead. So Pilate's trying to calm him down. This angry mob is getting stirred up. John 19, 1 to 5, it says this, Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, king of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Pilate's saying, look, maybe if I just really bloody this guy up, mock him a lot, they'll let it go. But Jesus had already pushed it too far, and again, they come. Pilate went outside and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the robe, and Pilate said, look, here is the man but immediately when they saw him, the leading priests and the temple guards began shouting, crucify him, crucify him. We have a law and according to our law, he must die for he's claimed to be the son of God. So Pilate brought Jesus back into his headquarters. You can feel the pressure on Pilate in this moment. I'm ending with this so the band can come on out. You can feel this pressure. He brings Jesus back away from the crowd into his headquarters, and he asks him, he goes, where are you from? But Jesus did not answer. And you can just feel it in his voice. Why don't you talk to me? Pilate demanded, don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? The power of life and death is in my hands, man. All you got to do is say the word. I don't think you're guilty. You're no threat to Rome. I'll send you out the back door on a, on a horse with a guard, and we'll get you out of here. Like, I don't need to crucify you. And Jesus looks at him. He goes, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed, over, handed me over to you has the greater sin. In other words, Pilate. Is it about you? It's not about the chief priests or the scribes or the Pharisees. It's about all of you, but not specifically about you. It's not about Rome. Rome is just a pawn in the greater plan of my father. We've got a bigger thing going on here. I'm dealing with something bigger than Rome, than you. I'm here on authority from the one above. 
Then Pilate tried to release him again, verse 12. But the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, and don't miss this, friends, don't miss this. If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself to be a king is a rebel against Caesar. Do you see what they did there? They said, Pilate, either he's going to hang on a cross or you are. We're going to go to Caesar and tell him that you released a guy who was claiming to be king, who was a political threat to your empire. So either you crucify him or we'll crucify you. When they said this, verse 13, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that is called the stone pavement. It was now about noon on the day of the preparation for the Passover, and Pilate said to the people, Look, here is your king. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him. Crucify him. What? Crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. God's own people said, we have no king but Caesar. The leading priest shouted back. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. Why the cross? Did the Romans kill Jesus? No. Was it the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees because they were jealous or he was blasphemous? No. Jesus said this, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, only to take it up again. I lay it down to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, freely. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Who put forward Christ as payment for our sin? Romans 3.25, was it Pilate? No. Was it the chief priest? No. God put Christ forward as a payment for our sins. This was a part of God's plan Palm Sunday is connected to Good Friday. It's the reason Jesus came. God raised Jesus from the dead on Easter morning to prove to the world that everything Jesus accomplished on the cross was true. And in him, by faith in him, you have salvation. You have freedom. You are raised from death to life in your soul by faith in him. You're given new life by faith in him. Friends, you will never know the real Jesus without understanding the cross and understanding that the cross was not something done to a victim. Jesus was not just a victim of some really screwed up people's plans. He was absolutely in authority to the very end, knowing I must become the final payment for sins, but that's just temporary. I'm going to receive the wrath of God against sin on this earth, which broke the world. I'm going to go to the grave, but I'm coming back. That was just temporary, and the whole point of the cross is simply the final payment made to save us, to restore us, to bring us back into relationship with God, to set us free, and to put us on the path of life. And friends, that is what the cross is all about. 2 Corinthians 5.19, and then we're taking communion says this, in Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. He was making us right with him again. 
It's the center point of the Christian religion. It's the center point of our faith. It's our greatest hope, and it is the ultimate statement that God says, I love you. I'm for you. I'm here to rescue you. Amen? Friends, as we head into the rest of this week, I just want to encourage you, prepare your hearts for Easter. Spend time meditating on the cross. Spend time meditating on what God did for you. I'm going to pray for us and we'll take communion together. Lord, thank you so much for the cross. Lord, thank you that you sent your son to die for us. Thank you, Father, for your forgiveness, for your mercy, for your grace. As we take communion together right now, Lord, may we remember the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.